The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, January 6th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, the death of a whale. We have breaking news from Orlando, where one of SeaWorld's most famous and controversial attractions, Tilikum the Orca, died overnight after a year-long illness. With the exception of possibly fudgy, Tilikum was the best-known whale in America, made famous in the documentary Blackfish, which looked at conditions in SeaWorld and found them, shall we say, wanting. Documentary convinced me that SeaWorld, like a lot of zoos, is an ersatz contrived unnatural environment which is the worst habitat for an animal, with the possible exception of their actual habitats, where they get poached, poisoned, and crowded out. PETA marked the passing of Tilikum with these words, Tilikum dead after three decades of misery. Now remind me not to let PETA arrange my eulogy. Mike Pesca, dead at 81. At least 50 of those years spent in vain trying to achieve a Casey Kasem level of influence. Mike Pesca, a wasted life. Thank you, Where Peter. Mike Pesca ate a bunch of animals, got a touch of the colon cancer. We tried to tell him, rotten hell, after your pathetic life, Mike Pesca, sincerely Peter. But back to a mammal much weightier than I, Tilikum. Well, as CBS put it, She's had multiple deadly encounters with trainers over the years, and that caused animal rights activists to fight with SeaWorld to end those famous Shamu shows. I would have thought it might have lit a fire under the whale trainer activist, but no. Tillicum was driven mad by his condition, lawyer Robert Shapiro. No, sorry, the documentarians behind Blackfish persuasively argued. Here's how CNN put it. The whale killed one trainer at SeaWorld and, quote, Tillicum had been linked to two other deaths. Linked. We can't assert more than linked. No prints were found at the scene. No one would point the flipper at him. You know, there is a saying in the whale community, snitches get no fishes. So prosecutors couldn't get another whale to testify at trial, though several New Yorker cartoonists volunteered to be the courtroom sketch artist. Here, let me read the last sentence in the CNN story on the death of Tilikum. Many people expressed sadness over the whale's passing on social media Friday, while others labeled Tilikum a murderer. Yes, a murderer. They labeled a killer whale, a killer whale, as guilty of murder. Perhaps a bear indigenous to the Northwest would be described as quite grisly. And on social media, they're saying the bald eagle lacks hair. Look, maybe I've been less than sensitive with the death of this one killer whale. It's right there in the name, people! But here is my actual thought. SeaWorld is probably not the best place for a whale. Ringling's probably not a great place for elephants. 40 years ago, we thought they were. We knew less. Now we know more. We're reforming. Those institutions are reforming. But there are habitats for ringling elephants. There are no orca habitats. You've got to house the orcas somewhere. And Tilikum did sire 21 offspring. That fact was derided by activists. They said SeaWorld turned him into a breeding machine. I would imagine Telecom didn't mind that part of the deal. But that, what I just did, that's all we're doing. Even the whale activists are engaging in loads of anthropomorphization. You know, 35 years of misery. That's projection. You don't know. Being in SeaWorld was all Telecom knew. In a perfect world, there would be plenty of nice, clean ocean for all the whales, and they would swim freely. And they would occasionally eat one of us. And then, as we were 
gobbled off a beach in Patagonia. We'd all be thinking if we were right-thinking people, we'd all be thinking, oh, I bet he thought I was a sea lion. That happens, you know. Those crazy orcas. And as half our body were being separated from the other half, we'd say, you know, I am just happy I have done all I can for this majestic creature who feels no reciprocal emotion from me. In fact, the only thought going through his head is, man, this is one weird-tasting sea lion. On the show today, two more weeks. Two more weeks, and we can stop calling Donald Trump president-elect of the United States and just start saying, thanks, Donald. What to watch out for when that happens? But first, news about a peanut reversal got me wondering, why did we screw up that dietary advisory so badly? Professor of Food and Politics, Marion Nessel, is here to tell me. When the National Institutes of Health yesterday officially backtracked on a decade and a half old recommendation about peanuts, I think a lot of people who are familiar with the issue said this, it is about time. The evidence was mounting, level one evidence from random controlled trials, that the old avoid peanuts advice was wrong. In fact, it had the opposite effect as intended. It imperiled the health of more people rather than protecting the lives of a few. So I'm glad the new advice is out there. But you know what else? I'm kind of miffed. How'd that bad advice ever take hold? Think about the human costs. The Food Allergy and Anaphylaxis Network says that $25 billion a year is the economic cost of children's food allergies and that 200 people die every year from anaphylaxis in the U.S. from food allergic reactions. Now, those deaths aren't all peanuts, though another study showed that the majority of them are. And also, not everyone who died would have been a child whose parents followed these recommendations. But if you crunch the stats... And take into account that studies show that you're three times as likely to develop a peanut allergy if you're not exposed to them. It is a true statement that more Americans likely died from bad advice about peanuts than died from terrorists between the years 2003 and 2014. So is anyone really to blame or is this just a case of good intentions, the best science at the time? getting it wrong. Joining me now is Marion Nessel. She is the Paulette Goddard Professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at NYU. Hello. Hi. So could you take me back to 2000 and when this advice was made? Was this, uh, what, what are the standards for making such a broad sweeping recommendation? Well, first of all, um, I'm not sure I agree with you on um, how serious a problem this is. Food allergies are something that we just don't know very much about. There's very little research being done on them. Um, there used to be research at the government level, but they stopped it. Uh, the FDA used to have a big program on food allergies and ended it. Um, and it's one of those things that very, very few people know what to do with. It's hard to diagnose, and it is absolutely 
absolutely terrible if you happen to have a food allergy because it's difficult to diagnose, it's very difficult to treat, and you have to um, be diligent about avoiding what you're what you're allergic to. And peanuts are a huge problem because they cause anaphylactic shock, and people can die if they're allergic to peanuts and eat them. So they're a particular problem. And what's interesting to me about this is that I, like lots of other people, grew up in an area in a time when we never heard of anybody who had peanut allergies. Right. Um, everybody ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That's what we brought to school. It was a complete non-issue. And what we don't know is why it became an issue. The most reasonable suggestion is that everything got too clean. Um, and so the peanut business fits into this. Uh, and because lots of kids were getting peanut allergies and because they're so serious, Pediatricians and others said, don't eat peanuts. Don't feed your kids peanuts. And so parents didn't. In any case, they shouldn't be feeding peanuts anyway to little babies because uh, kids can choke on them. But they could give them peanut powder or peanut butter. That's also a big issue. Um, so they did that and discovered that people, that kids got more peanut allergies. And then the uh, Israeli studies with this snack food, Bamba, that's given to babies in Israel. It's a peanut cheese product that's um, sort of puffy, and kids can eat it because it's very soft and melts in the mouth. Um, Israeli kids are raised on that. Israeli kids don't have peanut allergies. And so as those studies began to be done, and Bamba was funding those studies, they show that kids who are fed Bamba have fewer peanut allergies than kids who are fed other things. So I want to go back, though, to when the recommendation was made. It seems to me now, but maybe I'm just speaking from a 2016 perspective, how could scientists say if we strike exposure to a substance, uh, we wouldn't raise the sensitivity to that substance? It just well, seems they were to- trying to save lives. If you gave kids with peanut allergies peanuts, they died, or they got really sick, or they went into anaphylactic shock, or were covered with rashes. So it seems to me that it was the obvious thing to do. If you've got kids with peanut allergies, you don't want to give them peanuts. And there are plenty of parents who will tell you that the kids didn't even have to eat the peanuts. All they had to do was touch them. So you you hear stories like this. You're dealing with parents who are frantic about their kids' health. They're worried about what's going to happen in school if some kid gives a peanut butter sandwich to another kid and that kid's allergic to it. I, mean, I, I think it's quite understandable why that, uh, why those kinds of recommendations were made. What else were they going to do? I don't know. Again, I'm speaking from a 2016 perspective. And maybe I've read a lot of studies within the last 15 years that told me that the thing that builds up immunity is exposure to the thing. I guess in maybe the year 2000, that wasn't so apparent to even scientists. Well, it does both things. That's what makes this so difficult, mm-hmm. that it builds up immunity. But if you're if you happen to be allergic to it, then you respond in ways that are really very dangerous. And so the question is, how do you strike a balance there? How do you diagnose it when these things are so difficult to diagnose. Um, You're lucky if you get a diagnosis of a food allergy. You're lucky if somebody tests you and you develop a wheel um, because then you know you're allergic to it, but lots of people don't. 
and and that's what makes it so hard. I think this is an area that demands vast amounts of research, uh, and we're just not seeing it. I noticed in the New York Times article today about the peanut recommendations that the people who commented on it were furious about the photograph that accompanied it, which was a photograph of peanuts. You're not supposed to give peanuts to kids because they can choke on them. Right, from up four to six months is about right the age, until yeah. they're big enough to be able to spit things out and chew and um, ha- and handle foods that need to be chewed on. Peanuts are just exactly the right size to block an airway. So we're talking about giving kids a product that is soft mm-hmm. and can be swallowed, um, and we don't have products like that here. So it seems like the recommendation was a combination of good intentions and then unintended. Con- consequences. Exactly. Were there people, though, at the time raising red flags? Was this the absolute, you know, consensus of the scientific community? It seems like if they got it wrong, which is what happened, there could be high consequences. There may have been people who were complaining about it, but I'm not aware of them. Mm-hmm. I didn't see much. I kind of track peanut allergy. I'm very interested in it. And I don't remember a lot of fuss about these recommendations were wrong. You were trying to protect the lives of kids who had known allergies or unknown allergies. And the Bamba research turned out to be a big surprise to a lot of people. I've talked to you in the past about recommendations that the scientific community has backtracked on. And sometimes you've pointed out to me that there was uh, there was commerce at play. So in 2000, don't eat peanuts was the recommendation. In 2016, yes, expose your kids to peanuts. Well, there's commerce yeah. at play here because Bamba funded the studies. So this is an example where uh, a food, (laughs) maybe it's uh, adding to the sum of human knowledge. uh, I don't know. This may be a situation in which an industry-funded study is doing something that's very good for humanity. Uh, That would be a rare exception. Okay, here's the last thing I want to ask. So even though, and you've talked me off the ledge a little bit about being upset by how could they have recommended this in the first place, I know that some people will use this to say, oh, how can you believe scientific recommendations at all? And I was thinking of the vaccine movement. It's different. I mean, the the science at play is different. Yet some people will look at this and say, you know, one day they're going to backtrack on vaccines just like they backtracked on peanuts. Why is that a bad analogy? Um, it's interesting that you mention it because the comments on the New York Times article um, are attrib- some of the people who are commenting are attributing peanut allergies to vaccines. Um, the anti-vaccine movement is something that is very disturbing because there's so much evidence that vaccinations protect kids against diseases that were horrible when I was a kid. Um, people died. Of, kids died of whooping cough and died of diseases that are and measles certainly that now are protected by vaccines. Um, but parents today have never seen those diseases. They have no experience with them at all, um, and so don't realize. Uh, what an enormous step forward the vaccinations were. Um, You know, science isn't perfect. Scientists aren't perfect. We're all human here, and we do the best we can. Dr. Marion Nessel, she's the author of Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And now the spiel. 
Today, Donald Trump was briefed by intelligence agencies about Russian hacking. Afterward, he issued a public statement in no way indicating at all that he believes the Russians were responsible, but he vowed to get the bad guys, quote, whether it is our government organizations, associations, or businesses, we need to aggressively combat and stop cyber attacks. I will appoint a team to give me a plan within 90 days of taking office. So you're on notice, 400-pound guy sitting on a bed. Remember, that's who he blamed for the cyber attacks. Now, if I was the 400-pound guy, I would be sweating more than usual. I mean, we know Donald Trump believes in torture. We know he already has no problem calling me Miss Piggy. Calling me Miss Piggy. The gloves are off. And as the president-elect asked, you do need gloves to use a computer, right? Because I don't know. I've, I've only sent four emails in my life. But the thing about the briefing that got me, we were told President Obama got one briefing Thursday, and then today... Uh, President-elect Trump got an identical briefing. First Obama, then Trump, identical briefings. And we're told this as if it should be assuring, oh, same information, both guys, very fair. But the fact did not comfort me at all, because there is no universe in which these same words could hold the same amount of power with Barack Obama as they do with Donald Trump. Hello, Branson, Missouri. And now, in its entirety, Radiohead's King of Limbs. You got to know your audience. That's what I'm saying. You got to know your audience. Mine loves obscure references to Radiohead. Anyway, with that in mind, I just want to take James Clapper and I just wanted to give him some advice on how to take that briefing and Trumpify it. You know, know your audience. Like here was the director of national intelligence after he briefed Obama, but before he briefed Trump. Department of Homeland Security and the Federal Bureau of Investigation provided details on the tools and infrastructure used by the Russian intelligence services to compromise infrastructure associated with the election, as well as a range of U.S. government, political, and private sector entities, as you described. All right, he'll never get that series of words. Here's what you got to say, you got to say. Russia, hack, disaster, total disaster, made us look weak, ineffective, unwatchable, dopey. Or how about when Clapper said, Russia has clearly assumed an even more aggressive cyber posture by increasing cyber espionage operations, leaking data stolen from these operations, and targeting critical infrastructure systems. Yeah, I would just shorten that. I'd go, it's schlonged. We were schlonged. Then there's this. We need to influence international behavior in cyberspace. This means pursuing more global diplomatic efforts to promulgate norms of behavior in peacetime Oh, he loves it. Here's what you do with this. Be a nice guy. Hey, you're friends with everyone. You could be a nice guy. They do pose an existential threat to the United States. Ooh, yeah, that's a tough phrase for Donald. How about they want to kill us? They want to kill us dead. It'd be a disaster. It'd be a total disaster. Dead. They want to make us all dead. Believe me, these are bad hombres. We should discontinue the temporary dual hat arrangement, which I helped design when I was Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence seven years ago. Yeah, one hat's all you need. This is a good part. One hat's all you need. Make America great. That was a great hat. Terrific, terrific hat. People are always saying, you're going to get another hat? No, you don't need another hat. You get one terrific hat. Cyberspace can be an echo chamber in which information, ideas, or beliefs, true or false, get amplified or reinforced through constant repetition. That one's good. That one I think you will get. Okay, all of that commentary, that was mostly on Trump's style. 
But I want to say something very serious. On this show, time and time again, I said there needs to be a how does Trump profit off of it meter, like pants on fire and four Pinocchios. Those things don't work. They're fine. I mean, they amuse and interest people like me who care about the truth, but it doesn't work with Trump. So my suggestion is you have the how does Trump profit on it meter. And I want to turn your attention to a Wall Street Journal article today, which is extremely important. It was on Trump's debt. We know almost nothing about Trump's debt. The Wall Street Journal shined a little bit more of a light. So here's what we know. We know he's the king of debt. He loves debt. He's talked up amassing a massive amount of debt, which he has. In his one disclosure, we found out he owed at least $300 million. There is no reason to think it's not a lot more. And that $300 million doesn't even include debt held through his corporation in partnership with others. There are now 150 Wall Street entities that are holding his debt. Here's what the Wall Street Journal says, quote, as a result... A broader array of financial institutions are in a potentially powerful position over the incoming president. I'd say if he defaults, they can foreclose on him. They could demand tens of millions of dollars because he's personally guaranteed the loans. What favors will he give these entities? What policies will he enact to avoid being foreclosed on. And who knows who else he owns the debt to? We know he owns it to some foreign banks, Deutsche Bank, Bank of China. And all the Wall Street firms who own his debt are regulated by government. He owns at least $14 million to Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo is currently facing federal scrutiny from regulators who remembered what they did when they signed all those people up for fake accounts. How about MetLife? MetLife holds $300 million in loans on this San Francisco skyscraper where he's a 30% investor. MetLife is engaged in a massive fight now because they're rebutting their designation as a systemically important financial institution. Just two examples. Those companies, many more, have so much leverage over our incoming president. And it is not hard to imagine that the Russians do too. What if the Russians gave him loans at favorable rates? What if they gave it to him at no rates? There's no way of knowing... He doesn't tell us. The Russians do this sort of thing. They're enormously wealthy. They spread their wealth around to achieve political aims. This is a good investment for them. This is a good investment for him. The only thing stopping either side of that arrangement I've just put out there is Trump's fear of getting caught, which is low because he hasn't disclosed and there's no pressure for him to disclose from any institution with actual teeth. Well, there is one other thing stopping him. Trump's belief in public service outweighing his belief in self-enrichment. And if you believe that, you haven't been reading him or listening to what he's been saying for the last 30 years. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Chris Berube and Mary Wilson. Those two can eat anything but they get violently ill at the sight of an anthropomorphized legume with a monocle they suffer from Mr. Peanut Allergies. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He hates punchlines that send eighth graders into hysterics. He has a D's nut allergy. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has a weird relationship with the puppets of Jeff Dunham. He's fine with Peanut. He adores Walter. But Jeff Dunham causes him involuntary projectile vomiting. The gist... On this show, I've been insensitive to the death of a beloved whale and to a really horrific allergy. Yet I've been pretty harsh on Trump, so karma's all even. Now, I'm going to watch a whale circus while eating goober peas, presumably in hell. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.